Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, we go behind the scenes of some of the biggest Hollywood action movies and the rough and tumble world of stunt performers with a BC stunt woman who followed in her mom's footsteps and into blockbusters such as Deadpool 2 and Black Panther Wakanda Forever. We look at tough new anti-smoking legislation in New Zealand that will see the sale of cigarettes banned forever to all people born after 2009, an incremental way to stop smoking for good. Will it work, and could Canada ever follow suit? If you've been in the market for cold and flu medication of late, you probably found some pretty bare shelves at your local pharmacy. We find out why that is and how it's a high-profile example of a much bigger systemic problem with chronic shortages of all kinds of medications in this country. But first, we head to Las Vegas to find out more about Project Arrow, a new Canadian-built fully electric SUV revealed at the annual CES Tech Show that isn't meant to be driven as much as it is to drive interest in Canadian know-how and companies involved in the EV business. We're going to stay in the U.S., though, for this segment. We'll head to Las Vegas. A few years ago, it was referred to as a moonshot meant to demonstrate that this country has everything the world needs to build the electric and autonomous vehicles of the future. Well, now proof or at least an attempt to prove that theory is on display at what is called the Super Bowl of Tech in Las Vegas, CES, formerly the Consumer Electronics Show. We were there the other day talking to Micah Garbo about what to expect. Uh, this one, though, is called Project Arrow. Arrow, it is being hailed as the largest industrial collaboration in Canadian history. It's not a bunch of separate components on display to show that we have what it takes to help build EVs. It is all united under one hood, so to speak, in a single vehicle. Now, of course, we don't have Canadian car manufacturers as such, you know, Canadian car brands. So Canadian companies, organizations, universities, and governments have all joined forces to build a fully electric, level three autonomous, fully operational, one-off SUV. It's a vehicle, Project Arrow. It's actually a vehicle. It's on display in Las Vegas as we speak. You won't be able to buy one in a showroom. Uh, it is, like its namesake, the Avro Arrow. It's meant to show what Canadian know-how can bring to this fast-growing EV industry. So will it succeed? What stands in the way of Canada being a success when it comes to being a big part of this next generation of vehicles? Well, joining me now from Las Vegas, from the Project Arrow booth at CES, is Flavio Volpe, the president of Canada's Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, who've been intimately involved in this whole project. Thanks for your time. Congratulations. Thanks for having me on, Ben. It's uh, it's been a whirlwind a couple of days here. A great culmination of three years of work. Yeah, no kidding. What exactly for for listeners who may not know much about Project Arrow? What exactly did you unveil at the uh, the Super Bowl of Tech uh, earlier? It's a it's a Canadian designed, engineered, and supplied um, zero emission, advanced, autonomous, uh, lightweight vehicle, and. Um, uh, from uh, bumper to bumper, the challenge uh, we did uh, three years ago when we launched the program was Canada doesn't uh, have its own car company. It hasn't had a new one pop up in over 100 years. But how can we take this idea of doing a complete car from the ground up, all Canadian, and then take it to the world's tech showcases? Can we do it? Uh, can we wave the Canadian flag in a way that tells a story like interviews with you or ministers that travel the world trying to sell uh, Canada as a place to make these cars? And uh, we did it the three years to the date that we announced it. Uh, we unveiled it here at the biggest 
consumer electronics show in the world. And uh, the reaction has been uh, fast and uh, heavy. I mean, there's an incredible amount of interest in the supplier technologies that are on it. And also everybody else asking me, uh, I don't get it. This is a car company. Uh, who are you guys? Uh, yeah. Can we buy one? Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, of course, I mean, this is the wrong analogy, but it's a bit like a Frankenstein, right? Like it was all put together yeah. with a bunch of different, uh, in, other, in other words, allowing Canadian manufacturers to show off their wares in one vehicle. How many got involved in this? So 534 companies bid to be on this car, about 230 of them passed that due diligence uh, filter that we had, which was commercially ready technology. Uh, that uh, could be scalable for the 2025 model year. And ultimately, 58 of them ended up on the vehicle. And, you know, the Frankenstein comment is a pertinent one. You know, we sat there and said, we don't want to build a Frankenstein. Uh, we're going to design this thing from the ground up and also then include all the companies that do kind of the structural components, the exterior. And we, we went and recruited the chief engineer of Aston Martin wow. to leave his job after uh, after having launched the Valkyrie and uh was on this, uh, led the engineering effort for us uh, over the last two years. And uh, I think people think that uh, we're getting good reviews on what it looks like too. And I think people eat with their eyes first, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, when you look at it, it looks like you've launched a new car, right? Like a new vehicle. Uh, that's not the case. We're not going to be able to buy one of these, right? In, 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 uh, in a showroom anywhere. Uh, but it is a great way of, of showcasing Canadian innovation there. I gather 25 new technologies incorporated into, into the vehicle. Yeah, that's right. 20, 25 new technologies. We've got nanotechnology being used in the connectors uh, and in things like uh, window defrost, which is nanotech, but also intelligent textiles that work with uh, the AI and the, uh, monitor you know, uh, health and vitals that could, uh, in case of emergency, be the first indicators to take over the operation of the vehicle. And as a level three autonomous vehicle, take you uh, for care. It's got graphene enhanced lithium ion batteries and the solar roof that we think is going to uh, make the range of this vehicle materially better than uh, than competition. And it's got a 550-horsepower dual-motor setup. And for all the gearheads uh, that are listening, that means 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in about 3.4 seconds. And so uh, what, what we thought was no one's going to pay attention if we build a simple vehicle. Uh, can we pioneer a whole bunch of technologies or combinations of technologies that uh, cause the automakers of the world to say, we should take a look at this. And ultimately, that's the reason for the this project in the first place, is to be able to get Canadian content, whether that's advanced auto drive technology, zero emissions technology, or, or advanced materials. So you're hoping to showcase this. I mean, CES, obviously, you know, as we called it earlier, there's the Super Bowl of tech, everyone is there. You're, this is really a, a single showcase for Canadian innovation in many ways. Well, the global CEO of Stellantis, and your listeners might know Stellantis as the, the name of the conglomerate that includes Chrysler, Dodge, Ram, Maserati, Alfa Romeo, probably the world's most powerful uh, auto executive, showed up at our launch yesterday, okay. brought over by a good friend of ours, uh, Rad Kedry at uh, Ontario Vehicle Innovation Network. And while we were doing the actual unveil, wanted to run through the technology and uh, asking me the same questions that you are. I think now 11 automakers come through over the last couple of days. Uh, I'll uh, be talking to one that has a little horse on the front of their car uh, later this afternoon uh, that really interested in uh, Canadian solutions on green materials, uh, clean drive, and things like uh, advanced cybersecurity for connected vehicles. 
I, I've, I was reading today, Flavio, and I didn't know this, that there's been a lot more investment. I mean, there's a real opportunity here for Canada going forward, that there's been a lot of investment, too, in sort of the next generation of vehicles as this Project Arrow signifies. So there's been about, uh, and thank you for that segue, uh, there's been about $17 billion worth of new investment in uh, electric vehicles and platforms and battery uh, assembly here in central Canada uh, over the last 18 months. It's an unprecedented run of new investment in new technology. And we think it's probably halfway uh, to where it ultimately lands. Uh, we think that uh, that the electrification of the automotive sector is going to provide opportunity for mining concerns across the country and then technology uh, sources from the west coast to the east and some of that is already on this car right now none of those car companies are canadian but 75 percent of the car gets made by uh, suppliers in a final assembly that happens uh, by uh, these all these international automakers so what we also wanted to do with project arrow was to show investors who have been doing a new vehicle startups in silicon valley over the last 10 years that you know, you could do that in Canada as well. Uh, we have a globally relevant uh, IT cluster where the world's number two in uh, critical minerals for batteries. And uh, of course, uh, we're one of the world's top 10 automotive producing jurisdictions. If the arrow doesn't have a production path, if it's, the, if it's just a, uh, a, a two-year world tour of a living, breathing prototype, but it inspires somebody else uh, or others uh, to... Uh, find, to found a Rivian uh, or a Tesla or a Faraday in uh, Ontario or Quebec or BC or Nova Scotia, then, um, then uh, that'll be a very, very happy bonus to the legacy. Yeah, it, it, I was looking up, you know, the Bricklin was, was the last car I could think of. I mean, it would be interesting to see something like that happen in this country. When will Canadians get to see it? I guess you, you've debuted at CES, which makes sense because I think you first announced the project at CES. But I gather it's coming home soon. Yes. So it's uh, the show's done here in three days. and We bring it back for testing and validation. Uh, and uh, we're going to bring it to the Canadian International Auto Show in Toronto on February 15th uh, for industry day. And then it'll be there for 10 days for everybody to see it. And then uh, we've got a planned uh, a tech demonstration tour that's going to go all over North America and then across uh, the pond in either direction. Uh, we've got uh, two events planned for uh, either coast in this country, as well as uh, one in uh, Quebec uh, to you know reflect where uh, a lot of our, our uh, suppliers are from. And so Canadians are going to get a, real good chance in probably four events over the course of the next year to see it in person, see it in the flesh. And then, of course, you know, we've got a couple of uh, university partners that uh, Ontario Tech University in Oshawa, uh, especially as our, our build partner, they'll be, um, it'll be there for all of its testing and updating through the course of the next two years. And uh, Canadians can come and see uh, the car uh, and that university anytime. You know, there's a lot of positive to this, but what are the roadblocks still for this to make sure that Canada is part of this uh, next generation of vehicles that we're seeing quickly being developed? How do we make sure that we're uh, that we don't get left behind here? Well, I mean, you know, we've got to be bold. I mean, to get the attention of global automakers, uh, chief purchasing people, uh, engineering and design people, you've got to change the way that you pitch things. This was not a cheap undertaking. Uh, you know, we got uh, eight. A million dollars in support 
from uh, Ontario, Quebec, and the federal government. And the project's uh, total envelope is probably about $20 million. So wow. about $12 million coming from the contributing auto parts suppliers. So uh, there's a reason why this is unprecedented. Usually uh, car companies don't strand $20 million uh, prototypes that don't go into production. But we had a different objective here. But we've got to stay fresh. You know, uh, It's said in this industry, the second a car is released, it's obsolete. Uh, we've got to keep this prototype fresh. We took um, inspiration from the Avro Arrow. And, uh, of course, that's uh, the name. That's the name. Yeah, right? but the story of the Avro Arrow is that every single one of the six uh, that were completed and the three that were uh, in line behind it uh, all had uh, technology updates and improvements on them. The first one was 85 feet long. The second one was 80. The second one did 1.5 mach. The third one uh, had uh, was scheduled to 2.5 mach. The Fred and Whitney engines went to Arenda engines. So we're, we're taking great inspiration on that. We've invited all of the 230 companies that qualified uh, through our due diligence process to continue to pitch us on uh, their latest technological advancement. And uh, for as long as this car has a life as a demonstration platform, uh, we're accepting new partners. And I certainly hope that for, from Canada's perspective, at least it has a more glorious future than the Avro Arrow did at the time. Flavio Volpe, thank you so much for your time. Um, much appreciated tonight and good luck for the rest of the show. Thank you, Ben. Well, if you love a good action movie, you'll know that they are the unsung heroes of of your favorite ones. The talent called in to make every fight scene, every punch, every fall, every leap, every dive look good, ring true. Uh, it is the big job handed stunt performers on the sets of most of the blockbusters of this era and eras before, of course. And one BC woman is finding a whole lot of success in that rough and tumble world, following in her mom's footsteps and onto some of the hottest action picks around. Here is how Maya Makatumpag Murray describes some of her best work. Action! I've been thrown off the bus. I've flipped off walls. I've fought and I've flown. Perhaps just a day at the office, not to the best of work. Incredibly, Maya started her career at the very young age of eight and has now appeared in dozens of movies and TV series, ranging from Supergirl and The Flash to Deadpool, Deadpool 2, The Day After Tomorrow, The Good Boys, and last year's Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Yeah, that was a good one. Joining me now is stunt performer Maya McIntumpeg Murray. Thank you so much for your time on this Friday. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's such a great story, you know, because I, I not to not to make not to draw any comparisons, but my mom's a journalist, and I followed in her footsteps, right? Because I was so proud of the work <laughs> yeah. that she did. So I know what it's like to grow up in a business and really try to. You know, there's there's a lot of pressure, but you learn a lot too. How did you get involved at age eight? Absolutely. Um, stunt kids are few and far between. Let me just start by saying that. Okay. But the yeah. reason why we were there were because usually they were we were second generation kids. We were kids that grew up around stunts, training lots of different kinds of physical activities and who had grew up on set. So that's why they would hire us that young, because most of the time we were related to somebody who was a stunt performer. And so that was more of a stunt acting role on the pilot of Smallville. And I just had to cry and be saved from a fire from Superman. 
Oh, well, that's that's a nice way to start, right? I can't think of a yeah. better, better way to start your movie career than that way. Yeah. Um, and then, but I guess there, there must come a time where you decide, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for real. And what kind of advice did your mom give you when you sort of said, okay, this is this is going to be me too? Yeah, um, I think that was that was when I came back from college and I decided, well, I was on track for law school and I said, well, this is the only time I'll be able to really dive into it and see if I really love it. And my mom was like, yeah, absolutely. Like, go for it. I completely understand. Was so supportive. And then she said, I'd know when you know, I hit the ground and I fall and I'll realize if it's for me because with fence, there's a lot of bumps and bruises and a lot of your job is just falling minimally, like knowing how to break fall and do it properly without injuring yourself. But still you get bumps and bruises. And so she's like, you will know if you like it or not. And when I got my first bumps and bruise, I just wanted to get up and do another take. And she was like, okay, go have fun. And and the rest is history, as they say. The it it looks, I mean, <laughs> I think people have a because there's been you know movies made about it you see behind the scenes stuff there is people have a pretty decent idea of what it is that you do but people mustn't know exactly just how grueling grueling it must be to do what you do every day it looks really demanding yeah and even though it looks like really demanding a lot of people really do feel um that they understand and it's really hard to explain because there's so many layers of sense and a lot of it is safety and protocol right. and making sure that our actors are safe and are you know able to do their physicalities to whatever degree they're supposed to so a lot of it is also being a coach and a trainer and safety on set so a lot of people don't really know that part of the job yeah so you're sort of the person who knows how to make these things look good at the same time as do them safely right that's kind of the yes, uh, the whole point what uh, what kind of training do you have to do to be able to do all the things that you're that you're asked to do on set um it takes a mix bag and it depends on the job and what kind of character you're trying to portray and what kind of world you're in whether that's marvel whether that's you know godzilla whether that's an underwater sequence or kind of movie so it all just depends and every single performer has a different bag of skills and for me a lot of it has been fight scenes and wire work and a little bit of driving that i'm getting into now so it just really really is subjective but always some people are trying to add even more skills and that's what makes it never a dull career to have because you can always add something to your repertoire yeah no kidding what, what are the things that you really i mean clearly some things you come by like everything in life some people come by certain skills naturally and other ones are tougher to learn right which are the ones that yeah. uh, that, that you picked up easily and which are the ones that you still that you still have to work on weapons i love weapons and i because i started martial arts very young um I was able, I'm able to have a certain level of articulation with weapons really easily that come naturally, which is nice for some things. And then driving is something that you need to drill and you need real years and experience in a car, um, just practicing on the track that I haven't had. So that's a new world that I'm getting into that I really uh, need to work on that I'm excited to just go into. When you look at, um, for, for listeners who'd like to know, you know, the typical an example of a typical day on set mm. for you. What does it look like when you get up in the morning and you head into and you get ready to go to work? Um, on a regular rehearsal day, you get up in the morning. Specifically for Wakanda Forever, it was you know run a mile, then do stances for about fifteen twenty minutes in the blazing hot sun. Then it was do uh, spear practicing. Then it's working on Cali martial arts and then fight choreography. And then for shoot days, it's Get up, go to uh, go to your trailer, go to hair and makeup, get your wig on and your makeup on, and maybe train your actor on what scene they have to 
rehearse for for a little fight scene that you may shoot and then me get ready for lights camera action get ready to do my thing in front of the camera yeah, you speak. I mean, I've I've watched a few interviews that you've done, read some other ones. Uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, was really a big moment for you. Why was that? What was it about that movie that really uh, felt like something really important to you? Oh, it was the first time I saw that movie. It was one of the most impactful projects I'd ever seen because of the way that they portrayed Black people, our culture, um, specifically Black women in the Dora Milaje, the character that I played in the second one, that, those women I looked to when I saw on the screen, and I literally cried when I saw the movie because it was such a beautiful, well-rounded, um, prideful portrayal of strong women protecting the king, but having so many different layers to them. And so just for me as a young Black Canadian stunt woman having to break through glass ceilings and push for certain things, being able to see how far we've come in the film industry and to see these kinds of portrayals and the magnitude of them, for them to be a, a Marvel-level superhero that's a Black man with that's honorable and prideful and just exhibiting all the joy, it was just a dream for me to be a part of the project. Yeah, the, the, even visually, the Dora Milaje is such an incredible thing to see on the big screen. It, it is really, mm -hmm. really impressive. You went with your mom to the premiere, didn't you, in L.A.? <laughs> yes, I did. I could imagine nobody else that I could bring having been a second-generation uh, stunt kid. So to do that was amazing. To share that moment with my mom was amazing. Yeah, because she must have talked about... I mean, I can only imagine uh, in her day there were fewer roles, there were fewer opportunities than there are today, uh, despite the many challenges that still exist. Uh, what is what has her reaction been just to sort of watching watching you? And, and does she share some of her experiences as well about what it was like? And you must have seen some of it for you saw a lot of it firsthand, I imagine. But just what it was like to be to be a black stunt woman uh, 20, 25 years ago. Yeah, she shared those experiences with me, experiences with me throughout my childhood and before. I got into the industry full time. She had several conversations with me, explaining to me the, the the issues that I would have to go through, the things that I would have to conquer and deal with. And that's what really prepared me to have a career in sense. That's why I'm able to navigate this industry, you know, regardless of all the things and the plights that we have to go through as performers of color and be okay, because I've learned from my mother and she's exemplified how to go about it with respect and honor, but also stand on what you stand on and believe in what you believe. And um, I just think that is the best gift that she could have ever given me. She must be so proud. Yeah, she is a proud mama and she's my, my best friend. So it was really nice to, to have that. What are some of those challenges if people don't understand what it's like? Because I think a lot of people look at that business and think, oh, it's all so glamorous and what, a, what an mm -hmm. incredible opportunity to get to be in some of these, you know, blockbuster films and go to premieres yeah. and all that it all looks really on the outside it all looks very slick and, and appealing but i know on the inside mm -hmm. uh it, it isn't always what do those challenges look like for you still to this day um stepping into a hair and makeup trailer and um uh having to deal with you know some artists who may not always know what to do with my hair know what to do with my mm -hmm. skin to match my actors um not knowing how to communicate um those roadblocks um, for them in, in a way that's respectful to performers of color, being the only person of color in a room and not having that same community and same support and same level of comfort walking onto a set that's predominantly male dominated, let alone, you know, getting into race and ethnicity. So um, 
it is always um, a battle to assert myself, assert the level that I'm at. And that's why I'm so proud to be at the level that I'm at, um, to be doing films all around the world and at a certain level so that other women, you know, men, whatever, performers of color in general can see that you can reach a certain level. Because before, in my mother's generation, there were a lot of roadblocks to getting to this level and being able to be celebrated at this degree um, as a performer of color. So it's great that I am here and representing, but it's also showing how much our generation is pushing for more in this industry. I was looking back, you know, I, um, Maya, I thought about that, that tragedy on the Deadpool 2 set and thought about the dangers of the work that you do as well and how that must be something that both you and your mom talk about and think about. Uh, what should we understand about, about the dangers that you face on, in your gig as well? Because it can be fatal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it really depends on, on the gig. Um, Joy was very new to sense. Yes. In fact, that was her first job. Um, mm-hmm. I was on the set about a week ago, a week before she passed. Um, what I can say about that is with stunts, it is calculated risk. We're not daredevils. A lot of people misconstrue the two. Um, we're not just randomly trying things and seeing how it goes. Um, we have professionals. We have riggers that have calculations to the T of where we're going. If we're on wires, we have rehearsals. We have mats. We wear pads depending on, you know, what we're wearing for our costume and all sorts of ways that we protect ourselves. So in cases like that, that is very, very rare. And those are situations that are so unfortunate. But I will say that as a summer performer, you always have the choice to say no to a gig. You don't have to say yes to everything if you're not uncomfortable or if you're not trained. You probably won't be asked. But again, if you are asked, you could probably just still say, you could still say no. So things like that are just so, so sad. But I know, and especially being in our Vancouver stunt community, we are tasked and so thankful to have some of the best professionals in the entire world when it comes to safety. So I have no problem um, confidently saying that I am, I, I never walk onto a film set thinking that I will ever lose my life. Yeah. Yeah, I know I was listening to your mom, to you and your mom talking about some of the stunts that each of you have done that the other wouldn't like to do. And I guess <laughs> jumping, off a bri- jumping off a bridge was yours, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not something I aspire to do, really. I mean, if I were asked and, you know, everything lined up, sure. But it's not on, my, on the top of my list at all. <laughs> my mom can have that one. Yeah, tell me about that one. When did she jump off a bridge? I was trying to look it up. I, um... I, I went back and forth with her about this. We forget the name of yeah. the project. Um, a lot of the times when you're doing and you're bouncing for multiple shows, things just got lost right. in the shuffle. But she she actually, yeah, bungee jumped. And that's how she got, that's um, how she got her uh, distaste for cold water. But she bungee jumped uh, off a bridge and plunged into the water. So it's not oh, her yeah. favorite moment. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, I, I'm, I, yeah, no, <laughs> no, there's many things of yours I wouldn't do. And that's, that's, that's at the top of the list. What next for you? What's, you've had such an incredible, you had such an incredible 2022. Yeah. Uh, what does 2023 look like? Oh, so many different things, um, which I'm really thankful for. Um, I just finished on a, on an Apple TV show that we've been busy shooting all around the lower mainland of BC, doing all different kinds of landscapes, which has been really great to see the desert and Cache Creek and the glaciers um, up past um, Pitt Meadows. So finished on that and um, 
looking forward to seeing what's going to happen in the year. The thing about my job is it just comes and then I get on a plane and I go to a new project or I stay in BC and I do something here. So we'll see what happens in the year. I'm not really sure. Yeah. And, and if you thought about, I mean, I know that, uh, that you've had stunt roles in many places, but in, in Black Panther, you actually had, you were given a, a, an acting title. Uh, is mm-hmm. acting something you'd like to do? Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally open to it. Um, more action acting is in my lane. And that's what I'd uh, love to try out and see where that goes. So, yeah, I'm totally open to any opportunities like that in the future. And I also noticed that um, that uh, given your background, I was I was reading an interesting interview that you did for Filipino on Filipino TV, who mm-hmm. have, of course refer, refer to you as a Filipino Canadian, right? A Filipino Canadian, yes. which is always yeah. So it's 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 incredible. A lot of a lot of you got a lot of people cheering for it. Yes, uh, the most special thing about the Filipino community is we back our own. We they the support is um, unconditional in our community, and I love it. And being able to have my name Makatumbag on screens is so important to me and I, I love my Igorot roots. It's awesome. Well, Maya Makatumbeg-Murray, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, it's a, what, a, what an incredible amount of work you've been doing and we'll be watching. We'll be watching to see, uh, to see you in the future for sure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. Well, it's a new year and oftentimes if you're one of those people who has the odd cigarette or maybe you smoke all the time, maybe it's time uh, your New Year's resolution is to try to quit once again. You know, only about 10% of Canadians smoke regularly now. That's way down. Um, in general, anti-smoking efforts have been really successful in this country. Uh, it's been curbed by a huge percentage in a relatively short period of time. If you think about it, New Zealand has been the same. They've sort of followed a similar path to Canada. We've very much been in lockstep when it comes to a lot of the regulations that we've passed over time uh, at the same time. But this year around, uh, this time around, New Zealand has jumped out ahead and um, passed some really strict anti-smoking legislation uh, that will ban anyone born since 2009 from buying cigarettes ever. With each passing year, the legal smoking age will rise by exactly one year, meaning that in as short a time as one generation and as older smokers leave us, there will theoretically be no smokers left in New Zealand. It is quite the legislation. Here is their health minister, Dr. Aisha Varal, speaking about the legislation. We know the majority of smokers want to quit, but they can struggle to do so on their own. This plan builds on the good work of quit programs by drastically reducing the availability of cigarettes, by making them less addictive, and by introducing a smoke-free generation which will mean that no one aged older than 14 at the time the planned legislation comes into force will ever be able to legally purchase cigarettes. These are world-leading measures which will put us on track to achieve New Zealand's long-standing goal of being smoke-free by 2025. Studies have shown that dramatically reducing nicotine levels in cigarettes makes it far easier for people to quit. So the action plan will see New Zealand transition to low nicotine cigarettes. This is a major change, but it is based on clinical research. And it is realistic, because with vapes widely available, there is a far less harmful option available for smokers who are addicted to nicotine. 
Dr. Aisha Viral there of New Zealand, New Zealand's health minister, talking about these new tobacco regulations. Of course, the big one is that progressive ban, right? That after a certain age, uh, if you're born after a certain year, you'll never be able to legally buy tobacco in New Zealand. It is, as my next guest says, a game changer. Joshua Nelman has written extensively about uh, tobacco legislation in this country. He's also a author of the book called Firebrand, A Tobacco Lawyer's Journey, which really looks right into big tobacco through the eyes of an attorney who works for those companies. And he joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on the show, Ben. I know, you know, New Year's, people talk a lot about, uh, we seem to talk a lot more about smoking around the New Year for obvious reasons. People who still smoke occasionally or regularly may want to look at making that their New Year's resolution. Some really interesting legislation coming out of New Zealand, though, when it comes to the overall non-smoking or or anti-smoking push. Uh, what is the government proposing? How would it work? Yeah, so New Zealand and Canada have sort of been on par in terms of their anti-smoking strategies over the last number of decades. and. Uh, both countries have had amazing results in terms of, of pushing their smoking percentage rate down in terms of population from about uh, over 50% to close to 10%, uh, a dramatic drop over the decades, of course. But New Zealand has just done something which is unique in the world, which is they're introducing a, a new age-based requirement, uh, which essentially says that anyone born after January 1st, 2009 will never reach the legal age, which allows them to buy a pack of cigarettes. So in other words, they've put a cap on smokers in their country. And what they're hoping to do is actually break the generational passing of this habit from one generation to another, they're trying to butt it out in its totality. So in other words, if you're born after 2009, you will never be able to legally buy a pack of cigarettes in New Zealand. It, it, it sounds like a really interesting idea. There must be challenges. I mean, there must be, you can already think of some of the issues of people who would move there. What Does it apply to tourists? Um, uh, can, it, can it be challenged by someone who thinks it's unconstitutional? I mean, it feels like it's going to run into some roadblocks, but it is, sounds like a really interesting initiative. Yeah, I think that this is one of those laws which every country in the world, especially countries like Canada, which have worked so hard on their um, anti-smoking strategies, will be watching so closely to see how it goes. And as you pointed out, you can think of a number of issues immediately that come to mind. For example, you know, if you were immigrating to New Zealand and you happen to smoke and were born uh, after 2009, what happens? I mean, will they tell you, welcome to New Zealand, but you're going to have to quit smoking when you move here? Or for example, the tourist economy, if you're somebody who's going to New Zealand to have a good time, is there going to be someone who tells you, sorry, you're just not allowed to smoke here? Yeah, I guess the real challenge here, and you've pointed this out in, in a lot of your writing, is that even in Canada and in New Zealand, very similarly, we're down to the 10%, more or less. And this is that attempt to to get it down closer to zero, right? To try and get rid of that 10%. What's the logic then be, behind a ban? I mean, I know Canada's tried many different ways to get uh, to cut smoking rates and has been very successful at it. Uh, do you think the ban, I mean, the, the ban clearly would work in the long run, uh, but that is that what it is that we've simply run out of ways of trying to get that last 10% to quit? Well, I think it actually speaks to the um, interesting kind of, I guess, paradox is what I call it, a firebrand of, of, of where we are in terms of, of Western countries that have been really aggressive in terms of anti-smoking strategies, which is that, you know, this particular product 
is so pleasurable and it's so pervasive that no matter the intensity of the anti-smoking strategy or campaign, doesn't matter how many no smoking signs you put up, there's always seems to be a segment of the population that will cling to smoking. And uh, so far, no strategy has been able to, you know, push that that last 10%, last 13, 10% to quit. So this is why, you know, New Zealand's approach is sort of revolutionary. It's special on the global scene and, and why everybody will be watching to figure out if it works. You know, you'd, you'd mentioned challenges. And of course, the other big challenge there is financial, which is that, you know, as in Canada, you know, there's a huge amount of money that uh, flows into both Canada and, and the New Zealand government's coffers from the taxes on cigarette sales. Yeah. Um, so, uh, There's an irony, an irony there, isn't it? I mean, we spend a lot of money trying to get people to stop smoking at the same time. Uh, you pointed out, I think it's 1% of government revenue still comes from the sale of cigarettes? Some estimates in Canada put it that high, uh, about $8 billion. That's um, huge. Yes. And in New Zealand, a slightly smaller population, $2 billion. Still, you know, no small change. And so, you know, that's another part of, of, I guess, how they're hoping this will work, which is with that January 2009 cutoff, there are still smokers in the country who are buying cigarettes. They're just older. This approach allows New Zealand to, like an addict, wean itself off of, uh, you know, those precious tobacco taxes. Uh, right. So it's not, it's not quitting cold turkey, you know, uh, presumably as, as those smokers die off, those tax revenues will shrink until at some point in, you know, a few decades, uh, there will be theoretically no smokers left in New Zealand and no tax revenue from cigarettes. You pointed out as well, though, that that will probably lead to uh, where there's where there is demand, there will always be supply. I mean, New Zealand is far more remote than Canada is. Uh, but smuggling must be a consideration here, too. So there'll have to be a whole bunch of different policies put in place to try to counteract the impact of that kind of a ban. I think that's the other area that everyone will be watching very closely, is that already there's a huge black market in cigarettes and tobacco, you know, in Canada and across the world. And so when you have a situation where a government is actually trying to stamp out the sale of cigarettes completely, what do we think will happen? I mean, it seems pretty obvious that uh, there'll be some entrepreneurial pirates who will come in and, you know, try to uh, evade the system and, and supply smokers with product. And I guess we'll see, you know, whether New Zealand is able to combat that and how successful they are at that. But I'd say it's an, uh, it's an uphill battle for them. Joshua, in your book, you point out a really interesting thing that I don't think people often think about, that despite the restrictions... The many restrictions that we all know well, if you've ever tried to buy a pack of cigarettes, they're now hidden. There's no packaging. There's no advertising. You're not allowed to have different kinds of brands, really, or, or different kinds of sorts of cigarettes. In some ways, this has created an even more profitable environment for the tobacco companies because they have no competition. They don't need to spend much money, and they still have a monopoly on the product. Yes, it's, it's remarkable how um, these multinational tobacco companies have managed to uh, continually and very cleverly pivot around the barrage of anti-smoking laws, regulations, strategies that have been deployed uh, with increasing intensity by Western countries and by most countries in the world now. 
to some degree. And that's actually sort of, you know, what Firebrand the book is about, which is it's it's essentially the story told through the eyes of a lawyer who travels the world working for some of the largest companies and manufacturers of cigarettes. It's it's really a story of, you know, how these companies have managed to continually pivot and increase profits. Uh, I mean, we use the word the word pivot all the time, but you know, when you think about a product that uh, in 1964, the U.S. Surgeon General came out and said, uh, you know, there's a link between this product and lung cancer. Uh, it's poisonous. Most consumer products would have been cleared off the shelf. But we're looking at a situation where, of course, you can still buy cigarettes within five minutes of wherever you are, anywhere in the, uh, in the globe. Uh, 60 years so, later. 60 years later. 60 years later. 60 years. <laughs> so these companies have, have been doing something that I don't think any other manufacturer of a consumer product uh, has had to contend with this sort of a threat to their core product. So it's just amazing that we're sitting here in 2022 talking about the fact that, you know, there are now more smokers on the planet, 1 billion, than ever before in human history. Amazing, um, eh? 2023, we just hit 2023. 59 years, 59 years. still stuck in last year. That's it's right. remarkable. That's um, right. Now, now, there are lawsuits, though. In Canada, there's been a big uh, attempt to try to recoup some of the health costs, uh, both in, from individuals, some of the uh, health costs, and from provinces, from tobacco companies. Where is that at? That seems to have been a, a successful strategy. I mean, the courts have certainly backed uh, those lawsuits against big tobacco. Yeah, I we're also in a unique situation in Canada, um, as uh, I, I think as as the listeners may know. Obviously, with the no smoking law in New Zealand, that puts them at the front of the pack in terms of anti-tobacco strategies. But Canada is right up there as a leader as well, and we've really been at the forefront of um, of our anti-tobacco strategies over the last uh, four decades. So where we are now is that. It, is that essentially um, over the last 20 years, there have been a number of different lawsuits aimed at the multinationals operating in Canada, and there have been some victories there. Uh, uh, and the victories have been so substantial, those companies are looking at claims of in excess of $500 billion to recoup healthcare costs on behalf of the provinces and on behalf of a group of Quebec smokers who also filed a lawsuit and won. So we're at a sort of a paused moment where basically the multinationals sought creditor protection, which they received, and they're now in dialogue with the governments to figure out how to resolve this $500 billion question mark. And no one knows where that will lead. As far as I know, this has never occurred anywhere else on the planet either. So New Zealand's got their special scenario, uh, and we've got ours try to recoup that money, right, of course. And and you mentioned that they're in negotiations. Now, I guess the fear is always that if you if you if you make cigarettes too hard to get, then there becomes a black market, right? That's always been sort of the back and forth. We saw that in Quebec in the 90s when um, they, they hiked prices, then they had to drop prices back down. Uh, this has been a long and slow process. I guess that's what makes the New Zealand incremental approach so interesting is that it does take into consideration the fact that there is a whole ecosystem around the sale and consumption of cigarettes that exists, and you have to tread step by step to make it go away. It does allow them, again, uh, like a recovering addict, you know, to wean themselves off 
of cigarettes and 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 the and the money that cigarettes generate uh, for the economy. I think it's really interesting, though, that no matter the strategy that any country has deployed, you know, against the use of tobacco, there is, uh, you know, really uh, no major Western country that has ever taken the step of simply making cigarettes illegal. Um, so that that tells you something. There's there is a fear about what would happen to the, the, the percentage of the population in any given country that smokes were, were this product to suddenly be denied. That's the power of cigarettes, the pleasure that this product gives. And of course, lest we not forget, you know, this is a very powerful drug. Indeed. I guess Bhutan is the only place that uh, that banned them. And that's that's age old, right? That's uh... Yes. And they are, you know, a very unique situation. Indeed. They're a small country in the Himalayas, and, and they've had anti-smoking laws going back to the 1700s. So they took a stand very early on as tobacco was spreading across Europe. But there's no other country in that category. Certainly not any major Western democratic country. Until now, I suppose New Zealand can add itself to that list. And I guess other countries will be watching to see if they want to follow suit. We're all going to be watching to see how this situation works out. And uh, I, I think there are going to be some surprises ahead. Joshua Nelman, thank you so much. Ben, thanks so much for the conversation. Happy New Year. You'll know that Canada has been experiencing a nationwide shortage of children's pain medication for months. We talked about that, cold and flu medication. Uh, Now it's having a cascading effect. It's impacting adult strength cold and flu medication as well. Uh, The Ontario Pharmacists Association says that um, they're experiencing shortages in that province. And really, this applies to the whole country for a number of different factors, including that shortage of children's medication, which led pharmacists to suggest, of course, that perhaps using smaller or, you know, crushing adult strength tablets might be a solution to that. So there goes some of the supply on the adult side. Um, And that shortages, of course, beget others, right? That's what always happens in these cases. Um, Global News did a story last night out of Ottawa. Here's Ottawa pharmacist Mark Yang speaking to this. So as you can see right now, most of my shelf is bare. The issue is we're not able to order anymore from our supplier. Yeah, so we have been, unfortunately, um, turning away our customers. I think that's a situation that's recurring in many places across the country. The problem feels more acute this year. The roots of the issue, though, are not new. One reason pharmacies are seeing cold and flu medication supplies dwindle is because this country relies a lot on international supply. Uh, We don't have big stockpiles. It's led to calls for Canada to invest more in our domestic pharmaceutical production uh, capacity for these essential medications so we don't run into these kinds of problems when there are demand or when there's an increase in demand across the board. Joining us now with more on this is Jacqueline Duffin. She's a medical historian and hematologist, a former professor emerita and Hannah Chair of the History of Medicine at Queen's University in Kingston. Thank you so much for your time on this Friday. You're welcome. So this really is a structural problem, right, exacerbated by the circumstances. I mean, we've seen this drag on through the summer when we had sort of an early flu season, kids with RSV and COVID and so on, and now we're seeing it spread. Yes, but uh, the problem in general is not new. We're just seeing it with this particular set of drugs. So what is the problem? Is it, is it really a question of domestic supply, domestic manufacturing and stockpiling? We just don't do enough of it? Well, 
stockpiling is a problem by itself because all drugs, as your listeners know, have sell-by dates. So you can stockpile, but you have to keep curating the stockpile to make sure it's not expired. It's uh, a problem that has multiple factors and multiple causes. And uh, sure, it would help if we made more drugs here in Canada, but we're not alone. And what listeners have to understand is that this is a global problem, and uh, the kinds of drugs that are missing, the uh, cold and flu remedies that we're talking about in the news now, have been missing in some countries around the world for months, long before they went into short supply here. Uh, there's a problem within the entire global supply chain. It has to do with where the raw materials come from, and that is from only a tiny few countries uh, throughout the world, so that most countries are like Canada. <laughs> They're getting their products from elsewhere. And also the number of manufacturers have declined. So aside from the increased demand that we see with the uh, cold and flu season going on now is uh, the fact that when there is a problem for a factory or a company, uh, there is no one else to take up the slack. So that, that is part of uh, the global supply chain issue. Yeah, I, I think back, I guess it was a factory in Michigan, right, that caused some of the big problems with the children's medication, the ser- the the, uh, the non-tablet medication earlier this year. And it sort of was, an, was an indicative of just how much one company's issues can create a ripple effect right around uh, the world. What can be what can be done? Or better yet, when did this begin? Because I guess what it is, you're right, Canadians are used to going to the pharmacy and finding what they need on the shelves always. And that's not the case in many parts of the world, and we're just witnessing what many other people are already used to. Well, what Canadians have been used to, and I've been following this issue since 2010, when I first experienced getting the uh, usual drugs uh, in the cancer clinic where I worked in Kingston. The uh, problem with this is that it's very obvious. First of all, we all need it. These are over-the-counter drugs, so we see the empty shelves in a way that we don't see empty shelves for other very, very important drugs that are also in short supply. There are more than a 1,000 different drugs in short supply right now in Canada, and that has been the case for more than a decade. What can we do, you asked? Well, first of all, we could count the problem. Canada doesn't really count it. There is a a drugshortage.ca website uh, that lists the shortages, Drug companies are supposed to announce in advance when a shortage will come, but in fairness, I don't think they always do. Nevertheless, the list is never analyzed. So it would be helpful if we would at least know how many shortages occur each year or each month so we'd know if it was getting better or not. The other thing we need is more transparency about where our drugs come from. Uh, I'm sure Health Canada knows because it licenses all the drug products in the country, but it is not easy for the likes of me to find out where these raw materials come from, nor do we have an essential medicines list. So right away, those are three things that we could do. 117 other countries, including many developed nations, have essential medicines lists that include not only the drugs that shouldn't be in short supply, if you could possibly avoid it, but would indicate which ones are most vulnerable to getting a shortage because there is only one maker. Or they would tell you where to go for a substitute. We don't have that. So right away, those are things that we could do uh, right here in the country, short of making a new manufacturing system of our own. Uh, Jacqueline, it, it strikes me that for something so crucial, it's remarkable that we don't keep better track of it. 
or that I we don't we are more trans- we are more transparent about it i mean this is seems like uh like i mean you're right the fact that this is an over the counter product uh puts this problem onto you know sort of right on right in front of all of us but you're absolutely right i mean we've been talking about this for a long time now do you think any of these things are any of these solutions that you've that you've brought up are any of these in the works i mean clearly health canada must be aware that canadians are not going to be too happy about ongoing drug supply shortages but as you also point out they've been they've existed for a long time with 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 drugs that we're not so familiar with the the government has done a few things first of all the website where uh companies are supposed to report was initially under the harper government a voluntary thing uh it became mandatory in 2017 uh even so, it's uh, it's honored in the breach sometimes. Uh, that, that that did not exist before. But I I want also to say that I'm old and we didn't have shortages like this when I first became a physician. They they have become far more apparent uh, in the last ten to fifteen years. And uh, I think, but I don't know, and I'd like somebody who does know to tell us that it is related uh, to the changes that occurred uh, in the manufacturing world uh, following the uh, global recession of uh, 2008-9. Something happened to companies. You know, they consolidated. Some of them folded. Uh, and in, and is that part of it? And how much is that part of it? It needs more analysis. In fairness, also, uh, <laughs> Health Canada and the government have been dealing with other very acute problems. And and what they end up doing is pouring water on the most burning problem at any given moment, rather than taking a long view. So perhaps your listeners will remember that there was a, a shortage of EpiPen injectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, for acute allergies uh, a few summers ago. And uh, we heard all about it. Canadians heard all about it. Why? Because it's kids. It's the same with uh, the cold and uh, fever remedies uh, just before the holidays. Uh, It was kids. And what kids have are parents who are really worried, and rightly so. And so the parents can make a fuss and call a journalist. But what you don't hear about are the shortages of drugs for people with cancer or the people with depression. They're not they're sick and they don't have advocates in the same kind of way. And so there's a huge imbalance into what the Canadian population thinks is the drug shortage. It's there all the time. And what I hope is when these current shortages resolve, that people remember to put pressure on their elected representatives, that we need to do something for all the other people who can't get the drugs they need. Yeah, because there can't be anyone in this country who doesn't know someone who's had trouble finding something of late. I mean, At this it, point, it, it, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. If it's not you, it's one degree of separation. Jacqueline Duffin, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time and your insight on this. Very, very, very interesting. We should be doing more. Thank you for your interest. My website is drugshortage.ca Canada. People can look at Drugshortage.ca. It says it all, doesn't it? Drugshortage.ca. Mine is Canada Drug Shortage and the government's is Drug Shortage Canada. Just Google me. Google Duffin. You'll find it. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great night. Bye.